If you would grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 2 is where we'll begin our study this morning. John chapter 2. You do well to open a Bible to that place. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I want to say a good warm, of welcome, warm word of welcome to our visitors. We're always thankful that you're here, and we'd love to get to know you. We appreciate you choosing to be here with us this morning to worship God. This is the part of our worship where we're going to open the Bible, and we're going to talk for a few minutes about some things that we read in the Bible and put together some thoughts that I hope will be beneficial to you as you try to pursue God. And think about what God has revealed to us about himself in the Bible. Before I get started, I want to mention two things. Uh, First of all, as I mentioned last week, I want to remind you, this weekend is our Bible Workshop weekend. So starting on Friday night, we'll have a singing here at the building at 7. Everybody's invited. I don't have to go through the ages again like I did last week. And uh, we want everybody to come. But please come at 7 o'clock on Friday. On Saturday, we'll have our youth workshop. And that will be all day Saturday, beginning in the morning up through the afternoon. We'd love to have, if there's anyone here who has not been registered, uh, to get ready to do that and to have us, let us be prepared for you to be there. Please get registered this week. You can do that on our website. And then on Sunday, Brother Phil Robertson will still be here. He'll be here to preach for us in my place on Sunday morning. So you won't see me up here on Sunday. You'll see uh, Brother Phil instead. So looking forward to that. The other thing is I want to remind the young people, I've told all your parents, But there will be a Devo at our house at 5 o'clock this afternoon. We want you guys to come. So be planning on that. Whatever plans you had, cancel them and come to my house. John chapter 2 and verse 19. John 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them. I'm sorry, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the question the Jews asked Jesus is, what sign do you show us? We want proof. We want you to demonstrate your power and vindicate your claims. When we talked last month about the miracles of Jesus, we learned that this is what Jesus' miracles were about. They were about showing signs to prove who he was and particularly his connection with God. And so here they ask, what sign will you do? And he refers them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign. And in verse 21, it says he is referring to the temple of his body. Now the disciples, it says in verse 22, didn't understand that at the moment. In fact, no one seems to understand it at the moment. But afterward, they come to faith because they believe that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So as we've pursued this year, remember our theme for the year is we're revisiting the foundations. We're going back to first principles. And we've been talking about Jesus. We've established so far this year that Jesus was a real person. We've established that Jesus did miracles and that there is a credible ground to believe in Jesus' miracles even in a modern scientific age. But when Jesus talks about a sign, he refers us to what we might call the greatest sign, the sign par excellence. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He speaks about the resurrection of his body. So what I want to do this morning is ask the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? There is a lot at stake in the resurrection. If Jesus really rose from the dead, That means he defeated death, the universal enemy. 
That means that the claims he made are validated and strengthened. He is more than just a man, more than just a good man, more even than just a a martyr. He is someone who has defeated death and gives hope to others who will link themselves to him. But if he didn't rise from the dead, well, Paul tells us, Paul's preaching is vain, our faith is vain. There's no reason to believe in Jesus at all. What are you going to believe in? You're going to believe that he was a good guy and that he said some things and then he couldn't stop his own death? We're still in our sins. Jesus is just another dead person. So when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, that's significant. And when Jesus says, this is my sign, that's significant. But I cannot overstate this. There is no more important question we could ask about Jesus or the Bible than this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So, let's get to it. First of all, what we can say is that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. You see that here in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he says, before he was killed. He says, I'm going to do this after I die. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 12. I want to show you that there are several places where Jesus speaks in this way about what's going to happen to him and then what's going to happen after what happens to him. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So again, you have a request for a sign, proof, in verse 38. We wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus is critical of that impulse that says, I'm never going to be satisfied. After all the signs he had done, they still say, prove it again, prove it again, prove it again. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign except one. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Specifically, he says in verse 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But of course, Jonah came out of the fish. He was only in there three days and three nights because after that, he came out. And so Jesus says... I'll be in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth, three days and three nights, and then I too will come out. So twice, I want you to notice this, twice Jesus has been asked to produce a definitive sign. What sign do you show us? Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And twice Jesus says, I'll give you a sign, I'll give you one sign. I will rise from the dead. When he speaks about it, he speaks about it in these figurative terms. He talks about it as destroy this temple and in three days I'll I'll raise it up. Or he talks about it in this way, where he talks about the sign of the prophet Jonah. But one way or another, he says plainly, this is the expectation. If you're looking for a sign, he predicts both his death and his resurrection from the dead. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to be spending a lot of our lesson, especially in this part of our lesson, in the book of Mark. So I hope you'll get a Bible open to that place. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Mark 8 and verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is happening here is Mark is detailing a shift in Jesus' teaching. It starts there in verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So there is a shift here where Jesus has not really talked about this before. But from the moment that they confess that Jesus is the Christ, from that point forward, Jesus points them toward his death. And after his death, his resurrection. Peter doesn't like that. And Peter rebukes him. In Matthew's account, Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter. You're behind me, Satan. But I want you to also notice that, that entwined with this saying in Mark is one of the characteristic sayings of Jesus. In verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, I'm going to die and I'm going to do it on a cross and you need to come die with me. Die on a cross with me. Take up your cross and follow me. And then verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This brazen acceptance of the cross and of death because of hope of life beyond death ties in very well with what we read back in, in verse 31, where Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to me, now you come follow me. Follow me means follow me to death and follow me through death to new life. Jesus speaks about this before it happens. And this, in Mark, the earliest gospel, is tied together with one of the most famous sayings of Jesus. Characteristic sayings. That I'm going to die and rise again. That I'll lose my life to save it. And if you follow me, the same will happen to you. Turn the page to Mark 9. And Mark 9 and verse 30. Mark 9 and verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So instead of opposing him, remember Peter had done that before, now it says they don't understand him. And so they're afraid to ask him, and they just sort of let it go. I, I, I imagine the apostles did this from time to time with Jesus. So when Jesus says something, and you're not sure, but you think it might be bad, maybe you just hope he changes the subject. You know, well, I don't know. I don't want to ask him because then I might get more of that. Like all that stuff about how I need to serve people and that kind of thing. I don't know. Let's just hope he changes the subject. And so they're afraid to ask him because they don't understand, and they don't want to hear any more of this negative talk. Maybe Jesus is just kind of mad right now. He's going off on this little riff about something. We'll just let it pass. But of course, it's not just a one-time thing. Turn the page to Mark 10. In Mark 10 and verse 42, Jesus is correcting James and John's power grab where they try to get the right and the left hand in the kingdom. Mark 10 and verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that you, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So the first must be a slave, he says, but he's really building up to this mic drop moment in verse 45 where he says, even I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is talking about his death and he's talking about the function of his death as saving other people, a ransom for many. But we can't deny that if you're going to read that part of Mark 10, you've got to move up a little bit back to verse 34, where he describes how they're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So what we are saying then is that Mark, which is universally agreed to be the earliest Gospels, contains numerous predictions by Jesus about his death and his resurrection, and that they are tied together with the characteristic sayings of Jesus, things that he said about himself that are memorable and that are admitted to be sayings of Jesus. So, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. The next thing we can say is that Jesus died by crucifixion. The Gospels tell a consistent story that Jesus was seized by the Jewish authorities after he was betrayed by Judas. And the betrayal is important because the betrayal means that they can seize him without fear of the crowds. There is a concern that if they were to seize him in front of everybody, especially during a major feast like the Passover, which is going on at the time when Jesus is seized, that there's going to be a riot of the people. The people love Jesus the people don't want to see this kind of violence against Jesus, and so perhaps they'll be unhappy about it. But if they could just seize him quietly and privately, then they could let justice be done and they could get the crowd behind them. And so the scene of this arrest and betrayal is the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and his apostles are gathered and Jesus is praying. So Peter and the apostles, as this arresting party approaches the garden, are prepared to fight. In fact, Peter famously cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He is ready to fight. They are ready to die. In fact, Peter himself says, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you on the same night. But there is some confusion about this because Jesus is not going to allow them to fight for him. It is not a fight. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And this must have caused great confusion for Peter and the rest of the apostles. How is Jesus just going to let himself be arrested, let himself be imprisoned, let himself maybe even be killed? How could this be? We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We're ready to make him the Messiah. And yet he is telling us, put your sword up. Why couldn't we see some of those cool miracles now, Jesus? It would really help. And so the apostles, in my reading, are confused and they forsake Jesus and flee. Except for Peter and John who follow at a distance and watch what happens to Jesus. Peter denies Jesus when he sees how things are going. Have you noticed how when we read the story of the Gospels, the apostles are consistently wrong and misguided, they are called Satan by Jesus. They don't understand, they're confused, and they're cowardly. That's important. It's important because what that means is the Gospels are not some kind of after-the-fact doctored account 
where the apostles went back and said, oh man, we got to make up a story here about somebody who rose from the dead. So let's make sure we look as dumb as possible. This is accurate about how they understood or better didn't understand. And so they are painting themselves in this negative light. And that is one of the rules of evidence when someone will paint themselves negatively while expecting to be believed. It is certainly a mark in their favor and in the favor of their evidence. So Jesus is convicted by the Jewish council after he is seized. He is taken to the Roman governor, Pilate, for judgment. There is an irony that the Jewish leaders convict Jesus a lot more quickly than Pilate does. Pilate really seems to wrestle with it where the Jewish leaders do not. And Pilate is torn because Jesus doesn't appear to have done anything wrong, but he doesn't really know what to do with him. And so he tries several different tricks, and eventually he declares, I find no guilt in him, washes his hands, and delivers him over to be crucified. Delivering him over to be crucified, by the way, means that he is given to the Roman soldiers to be beaten and for the Roman soldiers to take care of the crucifixion. That is their job. And so Roman soldiers attend the crucifixion. They affix Jesus to the cross as it is laid on the ground, and they put large spikes through his wrists, and they cross his feet and put spikes through them. And then they lift up the cross and put it into its place. And Jesus hangs on the cross while the soldiers watch. And a crowd gathers, shouting at him. The crowd consisting of a lot of the Jewish men who had condemned him. A crowd consisting of some of the women who had followed Jesus. The crowd shouts insults. At Jesus. And finally, we, we know that Jesus dies by crucifixion. Mark chapter 15 and verse 44. Mark 15 and verse 44 says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Pilate is surprised and he confirms with the centurion. A centurion was an officer who had charge over a hundred men in the Roman army. And he confirms with the centurion, yes, he really is dead. Remember, this is a soldier. This is his job. And so Pilate grants the body to Joseph of Arimathea. We also read in John's account, I'm not going to put it on the board, but I'll just read it to you. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So sometimes... When a crucifixion victim was lingering on, sometimes they would linger on for days, just hanging and dying. They would ask that the legs be broken so that they could no longer push up to get air and the victim would asphyxiate more quickly. And so that's what they say they're going to do with these Jesus and the two men who are crucified with him. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood 
and water. That's John 19, verse 31 to 34. So they don't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. Instead, they stab him in the side. And so Jesus is definitively dead. Now, it's important that we say Jesus died by crucifixion because for many years, critics of the resurrection have argued for what they call the swoon theory. That Jesus didn't really die, that Jesus just appeared to be dead. And then after this, of course, his scourging and this crucifixion, that he swooned and that maybe a couple hours later he revived. Now, first of all, I want to remind you again that this is what Roman soldiers did. This was their job. They crucified people for a living. How long are you going to have that job if the people that you're supposed to kill don't actually die? There are several soldiers around the cross. But I I think it's even stronger than that. Not only are there soldiers around the cross, there are the Jewish leaders who condemn Jesus to death around the cross. Do we honestly think that all of these people, all of them want to see Jesus dead? And they're going to let him down and say, oh, well, it's okay. Let's just throw him in a cave and hope for the best. Second, the swoon theory really fails to explain what happened after this. If Jesus really did just kind of have a feigning spell... And then a couple hours later, revived and, you know, maybe forced his way out of the tomb, which has its own issues, by the way. Then what happened after that? Why didn't he go around preaching after that? Hey, he could have had a close call. Would have been a great story. It doesn't explain why the apostles would so dramatically change their view of death and resurrection. I mean, he just almost died but didn't die. It does not explain why they wouldn't just celebrate their hero and go forward just saying, hey, Jesus is back. He almost died. They almost got him. Instead, instead, they are willing to die for someone who they said really didn't die. He just swooned. Why would they die for a guy who just barely survived and then later on died again? Jesus died by crucifixion. And and by the way, this is almost universally accepted uh, among believers and unbelievers that Jesus died by crucifixion. It is one of the best attested facts in history. The third thing we can say is that Jesus was buried. We've seen already that the body was given to Joseph of Arimathea, who buried him, who dressed him. Mark 15 and verse 46 says, Joseph brought a linen shroud, And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. The tomb had been cut out of the rock. He rolls a stone against it. The stone is very large. We learn from chapter 16. We also learn from Matthew's account that the Jews asked for a guard to be kept uh, and a seal for the tomb. But Jesus really did die and he really was buried. That was a part of the custom of the Jews. The fourth thing we can say is that Jesus' tomb was empty. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. Mark 16 and verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So some women come to the tomb early in the morning to tend to his body. I always think that's amusing, because Joseph had already tended to his body, but I guess it's the old women have got to do it to do it right. And so they're going to go dress his body. They find the stone rolled away. They see an angel who tells them he's not here. He is risen. That's important because they begin to say he is risen. Not just that we didn't find the body, but that we know he's alive again. So they immediately, being told, hey, go tell his disciples and Peter, they immediately don't go and tell his disciples and Peter, which is very, very interesting. There is more. Let's look over in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 10 says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So other witnesses came, and they did not believe the women, which is a very common thing in ancient times. The testimony of women was discredited and was not viewed favorably, which is another mark against the idea that this was made up. Why would we make up a story with witnesses who would be discredited by those around them? But the women... Tell some of the apostles they don't believe them. So Peter goes and he sees for himself. So we have an empty tomb. The stone is moved. The guards are bribed and say that they were asleep. The question is, what happened to Jesus' body? Now I want you to know that if we were to put these facts, I, I maybe crossing out the first one, some people would really strongly disagree. Critics, people who are not Bible believers, would disagree that Jesus predicted his death. But, but the idea that Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried and that his tomb was empty, that, that is almost universally accepted. The question is not whether his tomb was empty. The question is what happened to his body? Something happened to it. Somebody moved that stone. How do we know that the tomb was empty? How do we know that something happened to his body? We know because in just a couple of months, the apostles are going to start preaching that Jesus is alive and at the right hand of God. That his body was resurrected and ascended. They begin to collect followers, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 by the time of Acts 4, which is not long after this. So, how do you stop a movement that hinges on a resurrected person? You go to his grave and you move the stone and you bring out his body. In fact, 
all of this action in the book of Acts is happening in Jerusalem, where the tomb is. Now, that's the first thing. If you and I were to hear somebody say that, the first thing we would do is march our happy little selves out of Jerusalem to that tomb and say, well, is there a body here or not? And yet never is that body produced. In fact, later on, the accusation circulates that the disciples came and stole the body. And we'll talk about that possibility in just a moment. But but notice that if they say the disciples came and stole it, they're admitting that the tomb was empty. Because the tomb was empty. The question then is not if the tomb was empty. The question is why. And I want to add one more important fact to all of this. And we'll begin to put this all together. And that is that Jesus appeared to many people. See, at this point, a series of improbable events begins to occur. A number of people begin to say that they have seen Jesus again. Look in Luke 24 with me in verse 36. Luke 24 and verse 36. It says, Luke 24, 36, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So I want you to notice that Jesus goes out of his way to show them that he has a regular body. He eats with them. So he's not just a ghost or a spirit or a hallucination. There was fish there before, and now there's no fish there. And that he also allows them to touch the parts of his body that were wounded in his crucifixion. Talks about them touching his hands and his feet. So, if that's the case, you have people who now begin to say, not just, oh, we went to the tomb and there was nobody in there. The stone was rolled away. They begin to say, Jesus has risen because Jesus appeared to me. So Thomas says he sees Jesus and investigates the wounds of Jesus. In Luke 24, there are men on the road to Emmaus who have a conversation with Jesus. Sightings of Jesus begin to pop up. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a really important text in this discussion. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Now, this is important because this is a very, very early record of the appearances of Jesus. And Paul says, I didn't make this up. I received something and I delivered to you what I also received. That this is a part of the gospel. 
Yes, he died and that he was raised, but also that he appeared. And you notice how many different appearances he mentions there, beginning in verse 5. Verse 4, appeared to Cephas and the twelve. Verse 6, over 500 at once. James, all the apostles, and Paul, last of all. So the tomb is not just empty. You have early Christians, very, very early Christians saying, Jesus appeared to me. Now, some people have tried to pass off these appearances as hallucinations or that they're somehow signs of grief. And and we know that there are times when, when we're particularly grieved, we might see something or hear something and someone might attribute that to their, their dead loved one. That does happen. But what that ignores in the story of Jesus is that there's still an empty tomb. There's still no body of Jesus. What that also ignores is the fact that they claim to have touched and eaten with Jesus. And there are two of these appearances that are particularly notable. They're in verse 7 and verse 8. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Now, James and Paul are important because James and Paul were opponents of Jesus. James was Jesus' brother. And yet he was not a believer, but almost immediately he becomes a major figure in the church in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Paul says he appeared to James. And then there is Paul. We know from his own testimony and from the record in the book of Acts that Paul was an avid persecutor of the church. He was strongly against Jesus. He believed this was a lie and he tried to stamp it out. And then suddenly he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what changed? He would say, that story begins with me seeing Jesus. I know he would say that because in the book of Acts, he says it three different times in three different settings. He talks about how Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. Here he talks about it again. He appeared to me. And he talks about that as a credential of his as an apostle. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? He says in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Now that's a big deal. How do you explain someone completely changing their life when the only explanation they give is, I saw Jesus. Jesus begins to appear to people, not just people who are on his team, people who were against him. And they begin to believe in Jesus. So, the question, why is Jesus' tomb empty? What happened to his body? Is helped by this answer of the appearances of Jesus. But if we are going to say that the apostles stole the body, that the apostles somehow, in some fit of pernicious thinking, they decided we want to make our own religion. We really love Jesus. We're sorry that he's gone. But man, we've got something to work with here. Let's make something up. Then what we're really saying is that they made up that Jesus appeared to them and touched them. They made up the gospel that they began to preach, particularly the part of the gospel that had to do with conquering death, which is a, a centerpiece of the gospel of Jesus, including Paul's writing. They made up the testimony... That the first ones Jesus appeared to, the first at the tomb, were women whose opinion and testimony was considered far less valuable. 
They made up an event, the resurrection, that Greeks believed could not happen and that Jews believed would happen on a national scale instead of one human, one person. And they said, no, we've got a different idea and we'll see how it does in the wider world. We'll just make up that one person rose from the dead. They made themselves look like doofuses when they were really masterminds. They somehow convinced James and Paul to play around with their ruse and make up their own sightings and completely change their lives. And someone like Paul ends up suffering and dying for his faith. They convinced 500 people to all agree with their testimony. Have you tried that lately, by the way? And then having made that all up, they decided they wanted to suffer and die for their fake faith. I am sorry, but I find that extremely unlikely. That's the reason that modern critics really don't support that thesis at all. The idea that the apostles made it up. The truth is, there really isn't a good explanation for what happened to Jesus' body absent the possibility that he really did rise from the dead. And the question we have to answer is, what do I think happened? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? But if Jesus is raised, then he's still alive and able to save and to intercede. If Jesus really is raised, then God is real. Then death has been defeated and Jesus holds the keys to death. Then Jesus' words are trustworthy and certain. Then I need that power so that I can have hope despite the fact that I am going to die. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, it changes everything. But I really want to impress this on you. I know I've stood up here, I've been up here a while, talking about all of this. I can tell you what I think about Jesus' resurrection. I can tell you what I think about the different theories and the different facts. But this is a question that you have to answer. You have to answer what you think happened here. And in particular, I want to press you. If you feel like you can ignore that question, you need to understand something happened. And it is of vital importance to the life of every human on earth to figure out whether Jesus really has conquered death. So, the question is, how do you explain it? And if there is a budding faith in your heart that maybe there is hope despite death, that maybe something has happened that I can't explain, I encourage you. Study more, think more about that because Jesus' resurrection is the key to everything. And when we know that Jesus rose from the dead, all falls into place and faith has something to hook onto. So if I can talk with you more about that, I would love to do that. If you have questions about that, I'd love to try to answer them. But most of all, I encourage you, don't look away from the difficult question until you have an answer that satisfies you. There might be someone here this morning who has looked at this and who has heard about what Jesus has done 
And they've come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he said he is, and that he truly does have the keys to death. Jesus offers salvation to us, that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and the hope for eternal life. If you're willing to turn away from your sins and to come to him, be baptized into Christ. We want nothing more than to help you do that. Is there anyone here who has that need? Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.